0: We're ready to begin. Okay, so I'm just going to give a short introduction. And especially the ninth graders and the 12th graders know how excited I am about this talk, especially because I've been talking about it to you for the last two weeks. (coughs) Um, So on this special occasion, it's an honor to have Dr. Glenn Arbery my professor of many years, I'm not going to say how many, to speak to us at Oak Crest about one of the greatest poets and, I hope Dr. Glenn will argue, one of the best works of literature, maybe the best work of literature, um, Homer and the Iliad. As we sit here in our beautiful new campus, reflecting on the tradition of us, of the Greeks, we should be grateful for not only the campus, but also to have Dr. Glenn here today. Um, Mm -hmm. As we think about our curriculum, especially in the ninth grade, and hopefully 12th graders you can remember back to your ninth grade year, we studied about heroism. And we kind of traced that theme of heroism all the way through, starting with the Iliad, and reading all of the epics, and talking about what does it mean to be a hero? So today, when we're learning about Achilles, I want you to think about what does it mean to be a hero, and then maybe to also think about how can we apply our studies of heroism to our own lives. And I think this year, especially with our new campus, it's a great theme to reflect on, because as re-founders of Oak Crest, with our new campus, Every one of us, I think, has to be heroic. We're called to be heroic. So um, I'm going to just say a little bit about Dr. Glenn. Um, He spent his life teaching, (coughs) researching, speaking, writing, and passing on the tradition of the great epic heroes to generations of students. And right now, he's the president of Wyoming Catholic College. And hopefully, someday, if you want to check it out, you can go to the summer program. It's a liberal arts school, but it incorporates riding horses, camping, imagine that, um, hiking, long (laughs) hikes. And um, Dr. Glenn was born in South Carolina, and he grew up in Georgia. And his reading of Flannery O'Connor as a freshman at the University of Georgia began his journey toward the Roman Catholic Church. He was a convert at 25, and he entered the church at the University of Dallas, where he later took his PhD. He taught literature at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Thomas More College of Liberal Arts in Merrimack, New Hampshire, the University of Dallas, and Assumption College in Worcester, Massachusetts. He also served as director of the Teachers Academy at the Dallas Institute of Humanities and Culture, and as an editor of People Newspapers in Dallas, where he won a number of regional and national awards for his writing. He's published two volumes with ISI Books, Why Literature Matters, The Southern Critics. um, And The Southern Critics, excuse me, he was an editor. And he was also the editor of The Tragic Abyss. Um, Dr. Arbery and his wife, Virginia, they teach humanities. And Dr. Virginia was also my teacher, by the way. And she teaches humanities, trivium, and philosophy at Wyoming Catholic College. They have eight children and seven daughters. So I'm sure he feels very comfortable here at O'Crest with all these girls and young ladies and women. Um, And then Dr. Arby will be talking about Achilles and the truth of poetry. And before he begins, um, I would like to read a quotation from. Um, Dr. Arbery's book, Why Literature Matters, to reinforce this depth of love of literature in the Iliad. So this is from Dr. Glenn. He says, of all the poems in the history of the West, actual scripture aside, but including the Divine Comedy, Paradise Lost, and all the devotional lyrics ever written, God loves the Iliad the most. (laughs) Dr. Glenn Arbery.
1: I had already written in my notes uh, to say I haven't seen this many young women since I used to sit at breakfast in our house, you know, with our uh, seven daughters. But it's, it's a real pleasure for me to be here at Oakcrest this morning. I'm extremely impressed with what you've done here with this beautiful facility and all the plans, you know, to, to expand uh, that, that are already underway. Um, I also want to just say a word of thanks to Mrs. Lisa Kenna, uh, who has been a student for so many years, uh, it, it is hard to enumerate. Um, I've known her for decades, and I've never seen anyone who's had the kind of passion for the great works of the Western tradition that she does. And it's catching. You know, I've seen it in Dallas, and I know, I know it's happening here. Um, it's interesting to be here speaking this month because this is a month of some pretty momentous anniversaries 500 years ago you know martin luther put his 95 theses on the door in wittenberg um, to start the reformation a hundred years ago this month was the bolshevik revolution and a hundred years ago today as you probably know was the sixth apparition at fatima So I'm particularly delighted to be here on this anniversary and to be able to go to mass um, on it. Um, The operation at Fatima pretty clearly addresses the effects of of those first two. And I think it's crucial, and you should always appreciate this, crucial to be at a school where the whole truth can be embraced. Um, I teach at Wyoming Catholic College, where I'm the president, as as Mrs. Kinnam mentioned. And we have the same high end there. And let me just say a word or two about it before I I get into the Iliad. We started having classes at, at Wyoming Catholic College before I came. This was 10 years ago. But the idea was that real experiential knowledge of the world has to underlie all higher thought. In other words, if you don't know what reality's like, If you're, you know, living forever in a kind of technological or virtual world, you don't really have the basis of thought that, you know, Aristotle or or St. Thomas would assume. So the physical world and all its difficulty and grandeur is one of the first things we take our students into. Since the beginning, we've incorporated a rigorous outdoor program taking advantage of our location in the Rocky Mountains and combined it with a great books curriculum and a strong spiritual life. Horsemanship is a requirement. Um, you know, Everybody has to get to know the nature of that animal. It's not like riding a bicycle. You know? um, we don't have any cell phones, which is a, a policy that's kind of sounds radical, but is increasingly cutting edge. As you read, there was an article last week in the Wall Street Dur- Journal talking about what smartphones do to you, Um, you should look at it. But, you know, this has been a policy from the beginning. Our students, when they come in as freshmen, go on a three-week backpacking expedition up into the Wind River Mountains or the Grand Tetons. And when they come back down, when they first go into the humanities class, they read the Iliad, which is what I'm going to be talking about this morning. What I want to do is explore the real importance of Achilles. I know most of you have read the poem or or are reading it. And what I wanna to try to do is get at the nature of this poem and the nature of who Achilles is. In other words, why is the epic about him? I don't know about you, but you know, when I was growing up, there were a lot of Greek heroes knew, whose names I knew better than I knew Achilles, like Hercules or Theseus or, or some others. Why is it about Achilles? At first, he seems to just be one of the many warriors at Troy. This is what I want to argue, that in fact, the origin of the Trojan War and everything about its real purpose centers on the figure of Achilles, not on Paris and Helen, not on you know, the whole ostensible reason for the war, but on, on Achilles himself. So let me begin by focusing on this one fact that ought to give you pause as you read this poem, and that is that the greatest god of the Greeks, Zeus, right, the cloud gatherer, Zeus of the Aegis, spends the entirety of the poem fashioning the action in order to honor one mortal man. Now, in effect, what you're watching is the god in service to the the request that's made to Zeus on behalf of, of Achilles. Why is this, and what exactly is it that we're looking at in this poem? Zeus, in fact, has a task. And the task is rooted for him in this prophecy that was given when Zeus and Poseidon were both contending for the hand of the goddess Thetis. Do you all know this story already? You probably do, since Mrs. Ma has heard me say it many times. But but anyway, um, Zeus and Poseidon are contending for the hand of Thetis. Themis, the goddess of order, tells them that the prophecy is that Thetis will have a son greater than his father and that he'll have a weapon mightier than the thunderbolt. If you know the the Greek myths and how you know, one son overthrows the father, Kronos overthrows Uranus, Zeus overth- overthrows Kronos. What we're looking at is a possible um, complete overthrow of the Olympian order if either Poseidon or Zeus marries Thetis. So the solution is to marry Thetis to a mortal. And a mortal who would be somehow worthy of her. And the the most just man, the one that the gods choose for Thetis to marry, is Peleus. And it's necessary for this marriage to take place in order to save Olympus. In other words, it's a a way of of kind of carrying off the threat that would have been there for, for Olympus and pushing it down into the mortal sphere. Now, that's, that's one thing I want I me mean, just to, to, to sort of say at the outset. The Trojan War begins with the marriage of Peleus and Thetis. The apple, the famous apple that's thrown you know, with the inscription, to the fairest, that's at the marriage of Peleus and Thetis. What's that saying? It's saying that the Trojan War and everything that unfolds is going to unfold as a result of this marriage, and why is that? Because the war that would have taken place on Olympus is now going to take place down in the mortal sphere. So it's a, a kind of displacement of one possible set of circumstances down into the human world. Now what does this entail, the marriage of, a, of an immortal goddess to a mortal man? You know of many liaisons between gods and and mortal women in the ancient world. You know There are all these stories about Zeus, for example. That's usually the origin of the heroes. But do you ever hear of a marriage between an immortal and a mortal anywhere else in the ancient world? I don't think so. I don't know of any. Um, And the fact is that it's a forced marriage. Thetis is required by the gods to marry this mortal. All the gods go to the wedding, as as Hera points out to Apollo in book 24 of the Iliad. So how do we know this is a forced marriage? (coughs) From the text itself, I'm going to be jumping around in the poem to kind of make this point before I get back to, to the order of the poem. But what Thetis says in book 18 to Hephaestus is, is a pretty crucial thing here. She goes up to Hephaestus. You know, have you read this part? when you know, it's, the, it's the book with the shield of Achilles in it you know, when, when um, Thetis goes up and asks for new armor because Achilles has lost his with the death of Patroclus. Thetis goes up to Hephaestus and says, Hephaestus, is there among all the goddesses on Olympus one who in her heart has endured so many grim sorrows as the grief Zeus, son of Cronos, has given me beyond all others. Of all the sisters of the sea, he gave me to a mortal, to Peleus, Iaco's son, and I had to endure mortal marriage, though much against my will." Now, I don't know how much more explicit it could be that Thetis herself resents the fact that, that she was forced into this marriage. Um, for the sake of the other gods, but she herself is picked out of all the other goddesses, obviously because of the destiny that she carries. Um, what does it What does it mean to marry a mortal? Um, there's a There's a distaste in it that you sense in her in her words. Um, Peleus isn't exactly being complimented here, if you understand what I mean. Um, there's a passage in Book 17 just after the death of patroclus when the horses that that patroclus has been using that belong to achilles have are, are off off to the side mourning the death of patroclus this friend of achilles you know who's just been killed and here's what zeus says to the horses it's a kind of direct address to to the horses themselves <laughs> always it's fun to talk about horses in the iliad because there's one point when the horse when a, Achilles' horse turns around and speaks to him, you know. There's Achilles. You think you're going to live through this, basically, you know. But um, you know, and Achilles says, "What are you doing talking to me?" I call it. Y'all know the, the show, Mr. Ed. This was from way back, but you know, it's about a talking horse. In any case, this is Zeus addressing the horses of Achilles. He says, "Poor wretches, why then did we ever give you to the Lord Peleus, a mortal man?" and you yourselves are immortal and ageless, only so that among unhappy men you also might be grieved, since among all creatures that breathe on earth and crawl on it, there is not anywhere a thing more dismal than man is. Wow. So this is what he's saying to the horses, you follow? So what would be the implications for what he did to Thetis in making, making her marry a mortal. Now all this, I think, explains what Thetis says to Zeus when she goes up to Olympus in book one to make the request that she does on behalf of her son Achilles, who has asked her for honor. She says, Father Zeus, if ever before in word or action I did you favor among the immortals, now grant what I ask for. Now give honor to my son, short-lived beyond all other mortals, since even now the lord of men, Agamemnon, dishonors him, who has taken away his prize and keeps it. Zeus of the councils, lord of Olympus, now do him honor. Now, I think the the implications here are are pretty clear, and it's interesting how Homer does this. In book one of the poem, you have no idea what this what this honor, I mean, what, what kind of dishonor it is that she's, she's addressing. So it's only much later when you find out, you know, that, that she's been forced into the marriage or, or that it's actually referenced. Um, this is out of a kind of tact, I would say, a sort of uh, unwillingness to, to put Zeus in a position of directly owing her. Um, or, or, you know, if she, if she goes and brings to him the fact that, you made me marry a mortal, so you owe it to my son. You know, it's very indirect, the way, that, the way that she goes about saying it. Aristotle, in the Nicomachean Ethics, points to this very scene in talking about how you approach the magnanimous man, the, the man of megalosuchia, or great soul, You know, the one who's um, not willing to be put in the position of owing you. For something that he's done. You know, the great soul man likes to be the giver of gifts and not to be put in the position of obligation. So Thetis goes to Zeus with this with this attitude of um, respect, not pointing out his his obligation to her. But I think when we realize what that obligation is, then you know the more potent this, this scene becomes. Okay. So the question I think you could reasonably ask is whether Achilles himself knows about this forced marriage and the destiny that might have been his. Think about what that would mean, you know, for you to think that your destiny would have been to be the greatest of all the gods instead of this mortal who has to die. I think Achilles does know about it. There, there are a couple of reasons I say this. Um, one is because of what he says to his mother when she comes to him just after the death of Patroclus and points out with a kind of bitter irony. Well, you know, you asked for the army to be defeated. You asked to get honor from Zeus and to you know, for everyone to see your importance. Well, there it is, and, and here's your, you know, your best friend having you know, just been killed. So this sort of bitterness, um, mordant kind of quality to what she says to him. And Achilles answers her, my mother, all these things the Olympian brought to accomplishment. But what pleasure is this to me, since my dear companion has perished, Patroclus, whom I love beyond all other companions as well as my own life. I've lost him, and Hector, who killed him, has stripped away that gigantic armor, a wonder to look on, and splendid, which the gods gave Peleus a glorious present. On that day, they drove you to the marriage bed of a mortal. See what he's saying? This armor that was his, that, that Patroclus had worn into battle, and that it was stripped from him, was the gift that the gods gave to Peleus on the day that they drove, U- t- drove Thetis to the marriage bed of a mortal. So another reference right, to the forced marriage and to the fact of, of Achilles' um, awareness of, of what's going on with his own parentage. And I also think it underlies what he first asked for back in book one after Agamemnon insults him. Do you remember how this goes at the, at the beginning of the poem? There's a, a girl named Kruseas, right, who is the prize, the war prize that Agamemnon has, has taken in the last battle. Her father comes asking for her back, brings all this ransom. Agamemnon refuses it, the old man prays to Apollo who sends down a plague, Achilles intervenes to see if they can stop the plague, etc. cetera. And, and then the whole, this whole thing escalates until Agamemnon ends up insulting Achilles and taking away his war prize, and Achilles withdraws from the army and more or less curses the army you know, until they see who he is and give him the kind of honor he deserves. It's hard to like him for this, but it's also hard not to see the justice of what he's saying, particularly since Agamemnon is pretty clearly in the wrong. Achilles goes to his mother and says to her, since my mother, you bore me to be a man with a short life. And what does that mean? You see, since you bore me to be a man with a short life, does that mean you bore me to be a man who only lives to be 28? Or, or you see, or does it mean since you bore me to be mortal, you bore me to be someone whose life ends as mortal lives end, which I think is what he means. Therefore, Zeus, of the loud thunder on Olympus, should grant me honor at least. For now, he has given me not even a little. Now the son of Atreus, powerful Agamemnon, has dishonored me since he has taken away my prize and keeps it." So if Zeus is going to make him have a short life, in other words, to be one of those who dies like other men, then isn't it at least fair that Zeus should give him honor? So what he's asking his mother for and sending his mother to Zeus to get is the kind of honor that would compensate in some way for what, for what he's lost. Um, so what's the task here for Zeus? I've said that he's the one kind of serving Achilles, in a way, through this whole poem. Achilles asks for honor, and Zeus has to fashion that honor. He has to make the circumstances come about in such a way that who Achilles is emerges unmistakably from from uh, from the events uh, Achilles mentions his two destinies in book nine i'm sure you' all remember this right he's got two destinies he either can have a long life without any particular distinction or he can have a short life with everlasting glory he's already asked for the everlasting glory in book one as soon as he asks for honor he's he's put that into play as his choice even though he acts later as though he hasn't But how does Zeus set about achieving or fashioning this honor? I want to suggest that it's the same task for the god as it is for the poet. And what's the poetic problem here, if you try to say it exactly? It's how you take this finite action, this action that takes place in Troy in the course of a few weeks, um, the anger of Achilles and its consequences. How do you take that action that in this limited amount of time and limited characters and make it into something that lives forever? Right? The poem itself that lives forever and that immortalizes its own the hero of it. How do you take a mortal man who's not a god and make him appear in the wholeness, right, of his true meaning as the kind of Sacrifice that makes makes Olympus possible, and how do you do that without taking away, at, you know, the the meaning of his of his mortality, the fact that he is a man like the rest of us, that he that he's going to die. That's quite a poetic task. If you see what I mean. I, I don't. Well, I'm not going to push the point now. It's not altogether unlike the poetic problem of making the incarnation understood? See what it means? There's a, there's a kind of analogy here that I think is, um, you know, implicit in it. So when Thetis comes to Zeus in Book 1 and asks him to honor Achilles, she's asking, in effect, for this poetic act. Let the Achaeans lose, but don't make it seem that it's just because of the intervention of the gods, right? It, they have to really lose. You know, Achilles withdraws from the fighting. The Achaeans greatly outnumber the Trojans. I mean, you, you know, it's it's <laughs> it's almost absurd the way you know the way that that uh, they, they outnumber the the people that they're fighting against, and yet they haven't been able to win in nine years. And yet, what Thetis is asking is that Zeus make it appear that Achilles. Um, is in fact this vital to the army and to to their success. So that not only what he is can emerge, the great warrior that he is, but the whole meaning of of what he didn't get to be somehow also emerges. Now this is what I call, and forgive me for this kind of language, the subjunctive abyss, (laughs) I, I love that man. You don't, but I love it anyway. Okay, so what, what is the subjunctive in grammar, right? It's when you're expressing a contingent or hypothetical or prospective event. So something that could happen or might happen or might have happened but did not. The depth of Achilles' anger, his, his manis, this this anger, comes from the depth of what he might have been. Great as he is, he has an almost infinite what-if, a limitless might-have-been. He looks at what he is, and instead of seeing his life in terms of the gift of existence that it is, the very fact that he's alive, he sees it in terms of deprivation or lack or denial. He sees everything in the light of an imaginable impossibility, you know, It's impossible that he be this, but he can imagine what it would be like if he had been. I suppose that instead of gratitude for your intelligence or your family, you resent not being more intelligent, not being born into wealthier circumstances, not being better looking, not being more socially adept, not having been given more advantages. Your actual existence is swallowed up in this might-have-been. This subjunctive abyss opens all the more when you, in some way, participate and have an intimation of the possibility of what you've been denied. The more godlike Achilles is, the more he feels deprived of actual immortality. Instead of being born divine, he was born mortal. Instead of being given the greatest being the greatest of all gods, he has to content himself with the limited possibilities open to him as a mortal hero. And this feeling of infinite denial awakens as soon as Agamemnon publicly insults him and takes away even the little that he has. So in his cry to his mother, Achilles shows that he understands the whole depth of what he is not, what he might have been, what he never can be, what's been withheld from him, in the very fact of his birth. When he asks for honor, Achilles is asking for compensation from Zeus. Since what he is had to be made subject to death, Zeus owes him a compensatory honor to make up for the death that ensured the Olympian regime. Now, what does this mean, right? What does it mean to have this kind of compensatory honor? The only thing that, would, that could adequately compensate for, for what Achilles has been denied is everlasting glory. And, and what exactly does that everlasting glory look like? I want to suggest that it's the poem itself. That, you know, the poem in its, in its magnificence, in its detail, in everything that's in it, is fashioning the, the glory that, that Achilles can't have as a god, but that he can certainly have um, in terms of the, the poem that's written about it. Now, Zeus has this great plan that um, he ponders, I think, at the very beginning of the poem. I don't know if you remember this scene, but it's just when Thetis goes up to, to Olympus. And this is a very tense situation. Um, Hera turns out to have been watching the whole time. You know, she's she's jealous of Zeus, and you can see why that would still hang on from from Zeus's attempted marriage to Thetis earlier, right? Well, the, these tensions might still be there. Thetis goes up to Olympus and grasps Zeus, Zeus's knees, which is the posture of a suppliant. You know, it, you're putting yourself in the position of somebody who's uh, saying that they're, they're more or less helpless and that they depend entirely upon the mercy of the person that, that they're addressing. She asks Zeus for this favor, and Zeus takes a long time before he answers her. He just sits there in silence. What's he doing? Right? He's thinking about what the consequences of, of doing this will be. And that's when she says, you know, to break the silence, well, go ahead and refuse me, that I may know how much I'm the most dishonored of all the gods, right? And then Zeus finally answers her and says, this is a very difficult thing you're asking. It's difficult for a number of reasons. The one he articulates is that it's going to put him at odds with Hera. Why? Because Hera hates the Trojans. As as Zeus puts it, I think, in this I think it's in book four. He says to Hera, you know, if you could just walk through the gates of Troy and go in there and eat Priam and all the children of Priam raw, I think that would be the only thing that would satisfy you when it comes to your hatred of Troy. What did Troy do to Hera? Well, that Paris, you know, picked Aphrodite instead of her. It's hard to imagine what else it would be that would, you know, that would bring about that kind of response. But in any case, it's going to put Zeus at odds with Hera when he starts to put in play this plan to honor Achilles. And why? Because the Trojans are going to win the whole time Achilles is absent. So to do that will be a a major issue. I think the other thing Zeus is pondering is how he has to do this. This This is just. It's just because of what Achilles has been denied. So it's a matter of, of the, the bill having come due, if you follow. You know, uh, he's, he's gotten away with this. But now Achilles wants something in return for the fact that he didn't get to be the god who um, might have been. So Zeus begins the, the plot. Uh, this doesn't really begin until Book 2. I understand that you don't read all of it, so let me just kind of sketch in books two through seven. Um, you read book six, right? You say that that's when Hector goes back into the city and meets Andromache and plays with his little boy and all those things that endear Hector to you. I'll talk I'll you out of that later. There <laughs> If Achilles' little boy were there, you'd like him better, wouldn't you, right? Anyway, I... Um, so the first four books of the poem are the first time we take it in the in the war or at least in the recent war that the Achaeans have fought without the presence of achilles and the book two is the famous catalog of ships And why didn't they do that at the beginning of the war right you know say who was there and, and where they were all from book three this duel between paris and and menelaus you know whoever wins gets Helen, they all go home, nobody dies, except either Paris or Menelaus. Why didn't that happen at the beginning of the war, right? Um, Then book four, they all go into conflict. And in the following books, there there are several heroes who emerge, uh, one of them being Diomedes. um, But by the end of book seven, all the substitutes have fallen away the whole question of Paris and Helen has been dealt with and put aside, and we get back to the question of Achilles. Now, you could say that the reason that these things that might happen at the beginning of the war happen now is because they're happening within the context of, of the request of Achilles, which means that their meaning and significance for, for the whole of the war is being put in its proper place. In other words, this isn't really the end of the war, the, you know, the purpose of the war. This is something that, that we should see in terms of Achilles. This, just a note on that. Zeus can't marry Thetis, right? Well, Menelaus is married to Helen, and so Paris can't marry Helen. You follow? He steals her anyway, and what happens is the disastrous consequence of the war. So what didn't happen on Olympus does happen in the mortal sphere. So things like that are are going on all the time in this poem. In any case, at at the end of Book 7, the Achaeans build a wall around their ships. Why didn't they do that when they first got to Troy? You see? What's the deal? Why is it that 10 years in... You're building a wall to, to protect your ships. Well, it, maybe it's because you didn't need a wall before, right? Um, so the wall itself kind of signifies um, Achilles in his absence. So by the end of Book Eight, the Achaeans have retreated inside the wall, and the Trojans are out on the plain with campfires burning at night for the first time since the Achaeans have been there. Everything Achilles has asked for has already been accomplished. You know everything he asked for in Book One. So um, the Achaeans go to him and ask him to come back. Agamemnon offers him a huge uh, ransom if he will come back into the war. He offers him his favorite daughter, seven cities, etc. Um, no telling how many splendid unfired tripods. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Anyway. <laughs> Um, so in books, the next phase of, the, of this plan that Zeus has comes after Achilles rejects the offer. He rejects it because he thinks that Zeus is already honoring him, that he doesn't need human honor. So in the next section of the poem, we see what happens when the Achaians, you know, try again. All their best men are wounded. The the Trojans press forward, they bring fire through the wall of the Achaeans, they actually ignite one of the ships, and it's at that point that Patroclus, you know, this best friend of Achilles, comes back into the, into the battle wearing the armor of Achilles. A kind of explicit attempt to substitute for Achilles, and is killed. Um, the other Achaeans save the body of Patroclus. And by the end of book 18, Achilles has learned of his death and you know, is, is already mourning him and determined to come back into fighting. So the third phase of the poem comes when Achilles gets this new armor, this splendid shield with everything it depicts that others are afraid even to look at. He puts it on, goes into the fighting, and then you enter the most violent phase of the poem when Achilles goes out against the Trojans who have now, you know, all of them become the enemy that that he feels he has to slaughter to the last man. He gluts the river with bodies. You know, the river overflows because it can't get its stream. (laughs) Anyway, um, there's a strange moment when Achilles fights the river. It's one of those things that's a little difficult to picture, (laughs) but but, um, famous scene. Um, the, the great scene with Hector confronting Achilles in Book 22. What does Hector look like? Hector is wearing the armor that he stripped from Patroclus that Patroclus had borrowed from Achilles. So Hector himself is appearing when the two of them fight each other outside the walls of Troy. He's appearing to Achilles as Achilles. right? as his own appearance, what he looked like when he went into battle before this. Um, Achilles kills Hector, which already begins to take on other meanings, right? Because if he's killing Hector, who looks like him, and he's going to die soon after he kills Hector, as the prophecy is, he's also kind of killing himself. He tries to dishonor the body of Hector. He has the funeral for Patroclus, and then honors him with the funeral games. And then the fourth phase of the poem comes at the very end. It's most moving. It's when, at the urging of Zeus himself, who calls Thetis up to him to take the message to to Achilles, it's even interesting in that respect, right? Achilles, at the beginning of the poem, calls Thetis to go to Zeus. The end of the poem, poem, Zeus calls Thetis to go to Achilles, almost in an intercessory role. Um, At the urging of Zeus, Achilles reconciles himself with Priam, who has come to ransom back the body of of his dead son. But the real reconciliation that's going on at the end of the poem is Achilles' reconciliation with his own mortality, with his own father, and the fact that he was denied through his father the immortality that might have been his. Because it's Peleus right, who makes him mortal. So his whole anger that, that, the, that the poem deals with stems from this death that's forced on him in his very conception to be, conceived was to be made mortal. Well, isn't that true of all of us, right? I mean, th- this, is, this is one of the things that, that uh, Homer's dealing with in the poem, and that makes Achilles such, a, such an astonishing figure. So when Priam comes to ransom the body of Hector in Book 24, the old man kisses Achilles' hands, and if you've seen the violence right in the previous books, and you've seen the way that Achilles has tried to treat the body of Hector, you see what a, what a uh, poignant thing this is for the old man to come in, take the hands of Achilles, kiss them right, In the he too in the posture of the suppliant, putting his pride away entirely, right, and entering into what he has to do to to try to make you know, to get his son's body back and to honor him. So this is what Priam says, Achilles, like the gods, remember your father, one who is of years like mine, and on the door sill of sorrowful old age. And they who dwell nearby encompass him and afflict him, nor is there any to defend him against the wrath, the destruction. Yet surely he, when he hears of you, and that you are still living is gladdened within his heart, and all his days he is hopeful that he will see his beloved son come home from the Troad, and so on. And you know Achilles is hearing this and thinking, "No, he won't. Right? My, my father will never see me come home. In fact, the very fact that you know Hector is is lying here dead is the sign that I will never come home. But." Priam then stands in for Peleus, right? The respect, the the honor that Achilles gives to Priam has to be the substitution for the honor that he can't give to his own father. And then that means that to honor Priam is somehow to honor the condition of what made him mortal, to be reconciled to the fact of his death, to accept the limitation, of of this life and to to make a kind of blessing out of out of um, what it is so what does that make hector the body of hector right if if priam stands in for peleus and is some is in some way a, a kind of substitute for achilles own father then to treat the body of hector with this new respect is already to in a sense um, anticipate his own death and accept that as well, if you follow what I mean here. Um, so what we're looking at is a, is a, a huge action, and, and every page of the poem is, is so dense with detail. So many people die. So many people's stories you know, come to light in the course of it, and all of those in the the great action that Zeus is fashioning and that Homer is writing for us. All of those things become part of of the honor of Achilles, part of the everlasting glory of Achilles. So we're looking at an action that would not be everlasting glory had Achilles gone into death still enraged with his his mortality. Do you see what I mean? If he didn't have the reconciliation with Priam and this, this kind of coda, this way of coming to see the whole shape of his life in a new way, I don't think we could say that, that Zeus had accomplished his task well. He, you know, There would still be something wrong with it. Have any of you read the Aeneid? Are you reading that here? Remember the last line of the Aeneid? Have you gotten there? Aeneas kills Turnus, and his soul fled down indignant to the underworld, you know, something like that. Last line of the poem, you know, murder, rage, indignity, not at all the last of, of the Iliad, where things kind of come to a peace, to a reconciliation, without which I don't think the honor of Achilles could be complete. We would not think of him, you know, as, as the great hero if he didn't somehow come to terms with the mortality that he actually has, the life that he's given, the gift of that, instead of always mourning what was, what was denied him. So what Zeus factions is the revelation of the greatness of this hero who might have been the supreme god. And we're also watching as we see this the revelation of the poetic mode that made Zeus himself earn his continued rule. If Zeus didn't do this, if he didn't somehow honor this mortal who was uh, on whom his own regime depends, would he be worthy to, to continue and rule himself? There's something about the, the gesture, the gift. Of, of what he does that makes it uh, legitimate his own rule as well. So we're not, we're not sorry, in effect, that, you know, that Zeus is, is still the supreme god. So what are we looking at? We're looking at, at the, the gift in, through the poem itself of, of memory of this great story. How, how are you reconciled with being mortal, right? What is it that makes you somehow come to terms with the inescapable fact that you're going to die? That's, that's what the poem is about. It's, it's, and it's about that with respect to a person for whom that was not a necessity, you see, in the, in the same way it is for most of us. Um, what do we remember you know, of the story as it's told? What do we understand about glory as it's given through this kind of poetic memory that connects a whole people to its past. Not just the Greeks, but all of us who read it are connected back in a deep way to this this past, which I think we uh, increasingly incorporate the more we think about it. It gives us an ordering of our understanding in terms of where we are in the cosmos, with respect to the gods, with respect to the dead, with respect to uh, the, the whole shape of the cosmos. And I think, as I suggested earlier, there's an analogy in this poem to Revelation itself, especially when you think about the vastness of the biblical scope of things, how it entails the whole history of a people in time and in eternity, prophecy, fulfillment, and aftermath With God Himself as the greatest poet, both shaper and character in His own poem. Okay, let me stop there. Thank you very much for listening. I appreciate it.
0: Those that have to leave for class, you can go to your class. And then the ninth graders and others are going to be staying here. Thank you for coming.